This is a post-Christian podcast. Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. Good morning, good morning. Hello. Good. Well, I was going to say good morning, but it's not morning for you there, is it? Hello, everybody. I'm get started here in a sec. 7 p.m. there. Oh, wow, yeah. I guess we can go get started here. So, yeah, Jay is hanging out with his kiddos, um, getting some holiday family time in. Hello, Jared. So, you're stuck with me today. Yeah, so that's, yeah, Bob, I agree. That is good that he's uh, getting some time in with the kids. So, so yeah, today we're going to be um, talking about uh, traditions. Which it's not really a, a Christmas or a holiday talk per se, but figure um, holiday times are full of traditions, and so that would be an appropriate thing to talk about: traditions and rituals. Which I think that um, rituals, in my mind, are kind of like you know small, bite-sized traditions almost. Um, rituals you probably do more like weekly, whereas traditions be you know like festivals and probably more yearly celebrations and things like that. But we, because of our culture being so saturated with uh, traditions and rituals, we kind of end up with uh, systems and rituals and traditions that we haven't really chosen, that we just kind of wound up with. And because we haven't chosen them, we haven't examined them properly. And when I used the word tradition, I decided to come up with a, a way to define it, and I, um, I came up with kind of a, a pretty flowery definition for it, which is... Uh, Traditions are practices that decorate and accentuate the rhythms of life in the context of a given culture. So you got the the the, pra- the rhythms of life in a given culture. So you know, in, in any in any culture, you have, uh, of course, you have the the seasons, which you can't help. But then every culture has its own different flow of the of the holidays. Of course, uh, for us in the West, whenever it gets chilly out, we got Thanksgiving. We got we got a, we get. A bunch of holidays back to back to back, and of course after after Christmas we'll even have Valentine's Day. Um, but that kind of sets the pace, the pace and the rhythm of the of the culture. Um, so it can be anything from like handshakes can be a tradition. Um, so using the appropriate degrees of firmness, you know, when when you're shaking different people's hands, that can be observing a tradition. Uh, you know, that's like a cultural tradition. Of course, there's holiday. Traditions which can tie in with culture and religious observations. Uh, holiday rituals can be, you know, like, we know these all too well. Um, but yeah, gift exchanges and caroling, things like that. Um, I think activities that are traditions or rituals, uh, firstly, they kind of have to serve a, a purpose. So any activity can become a tradition or a ritual. War and killing would be a tradition, says Jeffrey. I guess it would be. It'd be a very sad tradition, but I guess you're right. But they, uh, one purpose they can kind of serve is is setting the tone to kind of help you get into a certain me- mental state, a certain mindset. Also, traditions can kind of tell a story, or uh, yeah, the Yule log. Thank you, Jeffrey. Very helpful. Um, and they can kind of tell a story or represent a moral lesson, maybe rep- represent uh, a story, um, a, a fable, a myth, maybe. They can provide comfort and familiarity, and maybe even a, a familiar ritual from childhood that you practice for nostalgia uh, could be something that you still practice today, not for the intended purpose of the ritual, 
Like, you know, a lot of people who don't even believe in God will still, if they get really scared, you know, still pray or something like that. And, and that can just be just not because they believe in God, but because it's a comforting ritual from childhood because it's familiar. And that's kind of the thing about ritual is that the purpose that it serves may not be the originally intended purpose. And in fact, a lot of the time, it probably isn't. Maybe most of the time, because rituals become abstractions of what they originally were, and they distort over time. Would the disciples themselves have any clue what our modern ritual of communion is based on? Uh, probably not. If they saw a crowd of sharply dressed people, Westerners, in a big church with their dainty little tiny cracker and a tiny little sip of grape juice, would the disciples think, oh, hey, that reminds me of the time that we had our last meal with Jesus. You know, oh, that's, that looks just like that meal that we had with Jesus. No, it, it doesn't look anything like it. You know, of course not. But does that matter? Is that... Our intention is, is our intention to replicate the Last Supper? No, it's not. The ritual has come to take on a life and a meaning and a personality of its own. It actually has many personalities of its own. It has multiple personality disorder going on or something. But um, a little joke there. But you know, there are a lot of different versions of communion. Like how often you take it. Um, some churches will do it monthly, some weekly, some even less than that. I have communion every single day for breakfast. With, you know, the, yeah, the types of food and drink that they use, uh, whether or not you have to believe in substantiation, if you have to believe that, that that juice is turning into blood as you drink it, I guess. It goes into your tummy. So one parable that I really, really like uh, that I heard from Peter Rollins initially, I, I believe it's a, a Buddhist parable, but it is the parable of the temple cat, and I think it kind of illustrates this point really well. And so the parable goes, goes something like this. There is... Uh, once an old monk who had a cat up at his temple, and every morning before he would meditate, he would have to go and tie up the cat to a tree because the cat would otherwise come and bother him during his meditation and disturb him. And so every morning before he meditated, he would go tie the cat up so that he could go meditate in peace. So his students learned then that every morning before they meditate, they'd go tie the cat up to the big tree. And then eventually the monk died, and so the servants carried on his tradition of, of tying up the cat in the morning before they meditate. And then eventually the cat died. So they had to go buy a new cat so they could keep on tying up a cat to the tree in the morning before they meditate. And then eventually the tree died. So they had to buy, they had to go plant a new tree. And so this long succession started of cats and trees um, being, being bought and used for meditation. And, you know, it's all because this, of this silly misunderstanding. But I think that's a great illustration of how the tiniest thing can be misunderstood and blown way out of proportion. And it kind of makes me curious about the actual or origins and um, proceedings around some of the Christian rituals that we have today. And um, also, this silly-sounding ritual or, or tradition could have still served its own purpose for the students of this monk. They could be thinking of their, of their founding teacher of this monk as they're doing the ritual, in remembrance of him, they could be entering into the mental space needed for meditation as they're getting ready to meditate, going through this practice of tying up the cat. And it sounds silly, but when you consider all the possibilities with a critical eye, your own perspective kind of opens up. And that type of critical thinking is essential for constructive interactions with tradition. Uh, it that critical thinking requires energy and effort, stepping back 
and asking why these traditions and what values are they pointing to? Because traditions point to, to values that we want to sustain and we want to remember. So what values are the traditions pointing to? What are they meant to remind us? What do they remind us? As opposed to what are they meant to remind us? How are they affecting us? And are they affecting us in the way that we want them to? Are they effective as is? Do they need to be adjusted? Or are they spoiled? Are they no good? Are they stale? Um, it also takes a lot of energy and effort to critically engage with any elusive abstract idea, you know. But uh, especially, it's especially true when you're talking about ideologies or philosophies, which I think we all do indirectly day to day a lot more than we realize. Uh, anything personal is some sort of reflection of internal, potentially even unrecognized ideology. A lot of the stuff I think lays dormant in us without us realizing it. And Luke 6.45 says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in other words, who you are on the inside always comes out in what you say and do. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can't help it, it just overflows. The way that we express our ideologies and how we name them and the authority that we give them must be fluid and adaptive in order to be effective and in order to survive even. To work and to be malleable is the only way for that to happen. How we express our ideologies must be adaptive to be effective also. Not just the ideologies themselves how we express them. And of course, this level of critical thinking is demanding and exhausting and often uh, a little extra spark of passion can kind of give us the extra motivation that we need because when we fail to get our hands on whatever it is that we desire, we become frustrated. And many are frustrated now, today, because our traditions and our institutions no longer represent our ideas and our, de- our ideals. It's not an innately negative thing to be frustrated. It's not innately sinful by any means. And along with critical thinking, another feature that helps us with being effective uh, when we're interacting with an amending and adjusting tradition is frustration. You have to be frustrated. You have to be dissatisfied in order to want to interact with things so critically and in order to affect any change. And frustration inspires uh, adjustment and adaptation. Without frustration, there is no change. It's kind of essential. For, uh, it's essential for the growth and progress of anything, really. And it, it is a yearning and a motivation to find a solution or an alternative, plus a passion and an ability to affect the change, all while adapting and adjusting your methods for the change through trial and error. So kind of learning as you go and, and, and saying, oh, this worked or this didn't work or this actually kind of worked here but also made this negative thing happen that I didn't want to happen. And, and so, yeah, it... Uh... I'm sorry, I got distracted reading messages. I need to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's through like trial and error and kind of learning learning as we go and, and, and kind of seeing what works and what doesn't, what sticks and what doesn't. And experiencing our own traditions critically requires being observant, and uh, admitting when we're wrong and learning from it, you know, being these are all parts of critical thinking. Um, wanting to be challenged and sharpened in the interest of edification, 
asking yourself, you know, being critical with yourself, how asking yourself how you and anyone just moving through life around you, really anyone, how you and others around you define and apply values, personal values and, and ethics. What are these values? What traditions endorse them? How so? How do they endorse them? Are those traditions still effective? Can we glean anything from these outdated traditions? Can we apply anything that we've learned along the way to get us this far? Can we glean anything from from the wreckage, as it were? If and when necessary, can we go and lay foundations for new traditions that better suit current needs and represent modern expressions of values effectively? So can we see the nuances of cultural values versus religious versus philosophical values? So can we see the nuances of how those things affect each other and interact with each other and interplay with each other, the cultural versus the religious versus the philosophical? Can we offer our insights into amending and reworking the old, outdated traditions into new, fresh, relevant ones? Hopefully, even new traditions that encourage critical thinking in future generations. So even traditions that encourage questioning and disassembling and rebuilding those very traditions. And that's the trick, is can we build something that's almost self-regenerating, something that's not intended to last forever, because it won't, because nothing lasts forever. Something that renews itself. Can we build new institutions in hopes that they will teach our children to think critically, even to the point of tearing down those institutions. Uh, rituals can serve as very personal, subjective reminders. Very personal and very subjective. Guides with our values as their compasses. They remind us, they kind of bring us back, they center us. In politics, or the church of politics, as I have cleverly calling it, that we have you know festivities around voting day and we have parties and there's inauguration day and we have superstitions and you're hanging out with your with your tribe and you're celebrating and or mourning together and then in the church of religion as it were we have uh, you know at at this time of year um, in the Christian tradition we have setting up the nativity as a family which is it's an interesting activity I think in and of itself because it emphasizes the importance of getting along and cooperating with family at the holidays, which is an important thing, I think. No religion or politics. And then um, it also has emphasis on the biblical Christmas story, which points to the tradition. And um, it also kind of sets up almost a little altar that you, you, know, you walk by during the season. An altar that just for the season and then disappears after Christmas time. And then in the church of culture, as it were, there are other traditions and rituals. There's the Super Bowl, which comes with its own superstitions and parties and rituals and games and, and festivities. There's, you know, tailgating and uh, drinking too much, throwing up. That's a tradition, I believe. I think often all of us want similar things for ourselves and for the world around us. And our, our methods and our strategies and our tactics can be miles apart, just as often as those desires have things in common. And our MOs for trying to manipulate the world around us to better resemble our ideologies, which we all do, I don't mean manipulate to be a negative term, but our MO for that can be shockingly different from other people and all else being equal. And um, personally, how my politics and my ideologies and even my conceptualization of ideologies have changed so much over the years 
and thinking about that makes a little bit more sense how different people can arrive at such vastly different conclusions because I myself have passed through so many vastly different conclusions throughout life. But my worldview, you know, has, has gone through uh, so many extremes and I, I wonder if, you know, a lot of that might have to do with youth. You know, when you're young, you have a lot of energy and very impassioned. But when I was young, especially, my worldview was, was a lot more extreme and dramatic and passionate and romantic and everything was like on a Shakespearean level of intensity, you know, especially in my youth, but, but also a little bit still now and probably will be to an extent kind of forever. And I, I think it's healthy to keep adjusting and to keep adapting. And what certain rituals mean to us and which rituals we choose to cultivate is always changing, even if subtly the way that we even participate in rituals might change, even if the rituals themselves don't change. And the world around us is changing, and the needs that we prioritize in ourselves and the circumstances around us are always changing. So kind of learning as we go, though our values may remain unchanged, how we name them and how we articulate them and how we express them and how we interact with them should grow with us. So responding and adapting in concert along with us. And I have an example for that, for the idea of our values not changing, but the way we practice them changing, and then then that eventually getting us to very different points in life, even though we started out with a similar heart. So my my example, let's imagine there's two friends, Dan and Tom. All I want to do is love their neighbor and feed and clothe the less fortunate. So like feeding and clothing the children and the widows. And so Dan sets his mind to raising funds to purchase food and clothing for the low-income kids in the area. Tom neglects the local kids in need and instead focuses on fighting for the rights of kids in sweatshops overseas. They see each other years later to debrief. Dan is upset with Tom for abandoning the local kids that they know and love who needed his help. Tom is upset with Dan for clothing the local kids using the clothes made by the kids overseas in the sweatshops. Dan says, that can't be true. Tom says, do some damn research, etc., etc. And it goes back and forth, going nowhere fast. So both had the same heart, the same intentions to start with, but they're now pitted against each other. It's hard, but to some degree, it's generally a good practice to remind ourselves to try to look beneath the surface with people that we disagree with. It's very possible that we really just want similar things in the end. And no one has the end-all, be-all answer to politics or theology or philosophy. These things are all founded on theories, theory of philosophy, theories of politics, theories of theology. They're all practices because they're all concerned with the pursuit of some absolute capital J justice, capital T truth, capital A answer. And because those things are absolute, you're never going to actually fully grasp them. They're, They're always fleeting. And it's not easy to have compassion for others with opposing protest chants, as it were. Sometimes it might take real-life experiences to kind of walk around in the other's shoes so that we can see it from their eyes. Or more practically, maybe hanging out with people you already love, maybe an aunt or an uncle, who you know has other-ish affiliations. Whatever that may be for you. Because we all have different perspectives, so our others are all going to be different. It cultivates and nourishes empathy, and once again, it's not easy, but I think it can be a good practice if you have the emotional inventory to handle it. But this can at least help 
to inform you the best, most effective way to love this other, this neighbor, or the best way to remind that neighbor that you're thinking of them. Having those lived experiences, humbling yourself and relating with the other goes a long way towards developing and strengthening a presence of wisdom. That's the other thing that I'm kind of going to talk about a little bit is using wisdom when interacting with traditions and and ritual. And not like just interacting with them, but like deciding which ones you want to engage with in your life or like what you want to hold on to, what you don't want to hold on to. Or, you know, making your own new traditions. Wisdom and discernment can inform our applications of compassion, I think, is kind of my, kind of a thesis statement. So compassion cultivates a desire for wisdom, and then wisdom informs compassion. And when I say informs compassion, I mean like it lets you know how to interact with people the most compassionately, because it's case to case on the basis of who you're interacting with. So I I think it can kind of almost cause a productive, healthy self-feeding cycle when you have compassion cultivating a desire for wisdom and then the wisdom informing compassion and then compassion feeding back into the wisdom. And in scripture, when we ask God for wisdom, God gives it to us. I think you know where I'm going. Of course, there is, of course, the example of seek and you will find in Matthew 7. But then there's a bigger example of King Solomon. And before we read that, I'm going to say that God does not give wisdom to us with the magical wave of a wand but through life experiences that will grow our wisdom and discernment so long as we put in the work. What you get out of it is determined by what you put into it. It's not due to magic or possessing any favor with the divine. It's just how life works. So we're going to read a little bit about King Solomon in 1 Kings 3.10. And this is the New American Standard. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. So this is just after Solomon asked God for wisdom to help him with being a politician, being king. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing, for wisdom. God said to him, because you've asked this thing and not asked for yourself long life, nor asked for riches, nor asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according... I love that. Behold! In the middle of like a paragraph, uh, discernment to understand justice. I have done according to your words. I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I've given you what you've not asked, both riches and honor. So there will be, there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, I'll prolong your days. And then, okay, this is funny. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. I like how in the Bible, unlike in any other medium, in any other form of literature or TV shows or anything like that, when someone wakes up and it was a dream, that's like a plot device, a storytelling device, to say that what happened no longer relates to the story. Whereas in the Bible, if you wake up and it was a dream, it all still happened. (laughs) So he wakes up, and it was just a dream. But still, (laughs) So it's like, like in, you know, in the New Testament when, um, this is a side tangent, but when Peter wakes up, God's laid out all of the forbidden foods, all the Mosaic law, forbidden foods in front of Peter. Peter wakes up and he's like, oh, it was just a dream, but I am kind of craving some surf and turf. I could go for some pork loins and some shrimp right about now. And he's like, oh, God said I could. I dreamt about it. Anyways, that's my stupid joke. 
so Solomon awoke. Behold, it was a dream. He came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Okay, so then it gets into, I probably didn't read, have to read all that middle stuff, but I wanted to get to this part here. So this is the story showing Solomon's newly found wisdom. Or maybe this is a story of, of cultivating that wisdom. Maybe this is a story of how God gave him that wisdom. Maybe this is a story of God growing that wisdom in him. Two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. One woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to my nurse, my son, to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, no, for the dead one is your son. The living one is my son. And then the king said, the one says, this is my son who is living and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, your son's the dead one and my son's the living one. And the king said, give me a sword. So they brought him a sword. The king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. And the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And the king said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She's his mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So yeah, that's a pretty cool story. It kind of makes me wonder, it makes me think back to Abraham and Isaac. It makes me wonder if that's a parallel at the last minute. It's like, oh, there's a sacrificial lamb here. We don't have to, or a ram. We don't have to kill your son anymore. You know, it's like the woman is almost kind of sacrificing herself at the end. She's sacrificing her motherhood to let her son live, you know? She's like, oh, I won't be a mother anymore so that he can be alive. And so she's kind of sacrificing her motherhood and saying, oh, here's a sacrifice to take the place. I wonder. And then this next thing, I want to give credit where it's due, and I'm not sure, but I think the seed of this idea came from Reverend Ed Hurd, who has spoken at Revolution here before and who was on a Meet Your congregation interview recently or on one of the Wednesday interviews. It wasn't a meet your congregation, but meet Reverend Ed Hurd is what it's called. Um, I think he planted the seed of this idea because he and I had talked on the phone for a while and I had written down some notes. And then after all those notes, I had this little thing written down kind of at the bottom of the page. And I honestly am not sure if I jotted it down while talking to him or after talking to him. I don't know, but I think some of it might have come from him, but it's definitely my wording, so I'm not sure. Anyways, yeah, something that kind of, he said, I guess, prompted this idea that uh, in spiritual maturity, our wisdom informs us that the narrow road is not just about a personal morality score that's based off some point system. It's about diligently restructuring society to benefit the positive moral trajectory of humanity. Our wisdom informs us that the narrow road is not just about a personal morality score that's based off of some point system. So it's not just about the me. It's about 
reconstructing society to benefit the positive moral trajectory of humanity. It's this grandiose language that it's this bigger picture sort of thing. And it's not just what do we avoid in the big picture, but what do we affirm in the big picture? How do we, as humanity, move forward? And Christ was constantly disrupting the traditions and rituals and expectations of his time. Like, constantly. Like, ever since birth. Even it's just this idea, and this is kind of Christmassy, I suppose. This idea that a king, a messiah, a god, was born in a barn and swaddled up inside of an animal feeding trough. A poor, vulnerable, weak God. That's disruptive to the traditional understanding of God. At age 12, when he went to the um, Passover trip to Jerusalem for the first time, and he sneaks off, so he's you know, supposed to be learning, supposed to be sticking with the tradition, supposed to be learning from the traditional rite of passage. This is a tra- It's literally a tradition or a ritual, and he breaks from it. And then in adulthood... He breaks the most stringent Sabbath laws. He eats with unclean sinners, therefore is an unclean sinner, according to the law. He is uh, executed for it, and he is therefore the crucified God, the weak, shamed, executed, crucified God. Talk about breaking from tradition. He would always say, you've heard it said this way, but I tell you this way. You've heard it said that way. I tell you this way. Christ would meet people wherever they were at and say, some things in our societal construct here just need to change. Some of this stuff needs to change. Not all traditions need to be torn apart or burned down or deconstructed, but Christ certainly gave us precedent for picking apart the structures around us with the intention of analyzing it, adjusting it, and seeing it for what it truly is. Its origin versus its current role and use. Think of how Christ did that with the Holy of Holies, with the temple. It had always been closed up. It had always been sealed. But then when Christ died, it was ripped open, breaking from convention, breaking from tradition, showing that we didn't need a divider between us and God. Or maybe showing us that it was empty in there. God wasn't in there. So what, however application we have for these traditions, and we, if we reconstruct them, if we put, even if we put them back together exactly as they were, now we know them much more intimately because we've taken them apart and we've looked at them. Or we could strip it down and then reconstruct it as a more simple and practical version of the tradition. Or we could beef it up, you know, borrow from other traditions and reconstruct it bigger and better, supplemented with new gears. Christ was born into the challenging, ignorant confines of the first century and its living standards led a very bold and outspoken ragtag ministry that was not afraid to confront anyone and everyone in the interest of nudging humanity towards itty-bitty baby steps towards God, towards love, towards building the kingdom. And we'll get to Afterglow here in a minute, see if anybody has any thoughts. But uh, here's a closing thought before Afterglow, so if you have any thoughts, you can type them up now, and I'll look at them uh, after we finish here. But I was just thinking about that idea that I mentioned earlier of of God as the weak, helpless baby in the manger. And that just reminds me of just how, how Christianity is constantly breaking tradition, how Christ is constantly breaking tradition, breaking expectation. That there's strength in vulnerability. The ultimate radical strength is absolute weakness. 
Christ as God as the helpless, weak baby in the manger. So that's what I got from my talk today. I'll scroll back through here real quick. Let's scroll through here. Oh, hey, James. I'm seeing there. I don't know if he's still here or not. Okay. This Jeffrey guy's kind of funny. He kept saying some funny stuff. War and killing would be a tradition. Oh, uh, hi, Jenny. I see you there. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. Ray, yeah, you were... Ray, you, he said, so sorry I got distracted with Christmas music and was late. Guess what, Ray? You distracted me by typing that comment in there. <laughs> oh, Cheryl says, trial and error. Greg says, good. I once heard that truth remains the same and tradition must adjust over time. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. Yep, mm-hmm. Uh, Cheryl says, Pastor Jay needs to write a word, a work study book on critical thinking. Both of you, this is amazing and much needed. Thank you. Uh, and then Cheryl said, back to Greg, kind of like a context of evolving life. I try to read the Bible in context like that, but of this time. Selena says, hola, hola. Uh, Roberta, that's okay, Roberta. You can still interact on the... On the Facebook page, if you need to, or anything like that. If you have any thoughts afterwards. Oh, yeah, that reminds me, actually. Um, we have the email set up, questionsforrevolution at gmail.com. So, yeah, you can email any questions that you have. If it's in response to a specific talk, then you can uh, put in in the email, put in which talk you're asking about or you're responding to, because it's not always obvious if it's just, like, a bare question by itself. So, yeah, um, if you have any questions, you can email them to questionsforrevolution at gmail.com. And then we have our Reddit set up now, which is thanks to my brother Nate. So thank you, Nate, for setting that up. It's r dash or r is r slash. I don't use Reddit. I don't even know how it works. I think r slash we are revolution s e a. So Seattle, we are revolution s e a. I don't see any questions coming in, so I'll just finish the plugs here. What else we got going on? Um, We're getting our new gear. Thank you, everybody. Again, I know we've been thanking you a lot, but not going to get tired of thanking you uh, for all this all the donations that y'all sent us and we're going to be getting our new gear very soon. So that's going to be a little Christmas present from the congregation to us essentially. So thank you all for doing that. Um, I think that's about it. Uh, unless anybody has anything last minute coming in here. I don't think so. So cool. Um, yeah, keep in touch. The revolution Facebook, uh, the community page is growing a whole lot. I just approved like six people yesterday. So we got a lot of new people there. So make yourself known and welcome everyone and um, stick around and say hello to your neighbor before you leave today. Bye. We'd like to remind you that our ministry is supported 100% by listeners like you. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com slash donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website.
was a post-Christian podcast.